Amen. It's good to be with you again today as we continue in our Sunday morning series called Verses for Life. What we're trying to do in this series is pick some of the most important scriptures that we think are important and encourage you to memorize them. Memorizing scripture is something that's kind of fallen out of vogue to a great degree thanks to technology. But memorizing scripture, putting God's word in your heart, is so essentially important because not only for your spiritual growth and for your knowledge and information, but as a spiritual activity of meditating on his word because it's in there and you don't have to look at the words and pull them up or listen to them, that it's already there. And so I hope that you at least consider. And and for these scriptures, I've tried to pick some of the most important ones, but I'm limiting it to something that I think is manageable for you to memorize in a week. So the idea is we go over a passage on Sunday morning, and I encourage you to spend the next week memorizing that passage after we try to bring some, um, you know, some ideas out of it that may, may help make it more um, fruitful for you as you consider what it is that God's Word says. So it's, there are so many important verses, it's hard to pick, but we pick these kind of in order that, that I go, ooh, you got to know that. Well, the one today is from Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53 is maybe my favorite chapter in the whole Bible. Um, It goes back all the way to when I was a student at Biola, and Dr. J. Vernon McGee would come and teach our Bible class like once a semester. It was Dr. Mitchell's class, but he would get J. Vernon McGee, who was his Bible teacher, to come in once every semester and teach. And so um, Dr. McGee spoke on, taught us on Isaiah 53, but one of the things that he did that really jumped out at me was, he said, take out a red pen. And he said, I want you to draw a red heart around the entire 53rd chapter of Isaiah. Because he said, this is the heart of the Bible right here. And so I thought, well, If it's that important, and as he taught through it, I realized how much was there, and I decided at that point to memorize the whole chapter of Isaiah 53. But I'm not stupid. I'm not going to expect you to do that this week. If you do it, you get bonus points, but I'm just going to focus in on verses 5 and 6 of this chapter, and I think that's very manageable for you to learn these. Now, Isaiah 53 is about what theologically we call the atonement. The atonement means that when Jesus died, it was for us. There was some way, maybe several ways, in which Jesus coming and dying on the cross is transformative for us in our lives. Now, we often, when we think of, okay, Jesus died for us, typically we go right to the idea that Jesus died so that we could go to heaven. But there's so much more in the scripture than that. It's certainly true that Jesus, well, in John 14, one of these days we'll get to it, that, that, you know, he's preparing a place for us and he's going to receive us unto himself. So it's certainly true that Jesus died so that we could go to heaven. 
But Jesus died for a lot more than just that. And I think we sometimes ignore that. As evangelicals, we emphasize so much praying the sinner's prayer and accepting Jesus, a term that's really not a biblical term. It's a cultural term. But, you know, we think of it as a transaction. The problem is the Bible doesn't promise heaven to people because of what they believe. There's, there's more to it than that. In fact, Jesus, when he talks about in the Olivet Discourse, when he talks about the judgment someday, <coughs> the judgment is not made based on what people say they believe. It's based on how they actually live their lives. And Jesus died to change everything about us, to make our lives so much better. And a lot of times we just aren't cognizant of that. And I think it's important that we would be cognizant of this especially in this 53rd chapter of Isaiah, where there isn't anything about going to heaven, um, but there's everything about the cross and what it means to us and what it does for us. So it's something that you would do really well to reflect on and take it beyond just, okay, uh, I believe, now I'm going to heaven, now I can get on with my life. Again, if you believing that Jesus is God, that he died for our sins, that he rose from the dead, that he's coming again. The devil believes all that stuff. Salvation is more than that. Now, to understand this, we have to look at the fact of the world is messed up for a reason. The world is messed up because people are messed up. And that means all of us. We, you know, we use the term sin, and, and the word used for sin refers to Settling for something less than God's best, his plan. Taking shortcuts. It's, it's doing the kinds of things that God tells us not to do. But God tells us not to do stuff because the stuff we're doing that he tells us not to do is what's destroying us. So when we remember that as we look at his atonement, what does his death do for us? We understand a little bit more than nuts and bolts. Now, Historically, theologians have debated over the nature of the atonement. Okay, Jesus died for us, so what does that mean? And there are people who, uh, the earliest, there are a lot of major theories of the atonement, they call them. And like one of them is a ransom theory. It's the idea that somehow the devil was in control of the world because of the fall, and God had to pay Satan the blood of Jesus in order to gain back power over the world. That was actually a pretty prominent view in the first couple centuries of church history. Not as much of an emphasis today, and it sounds a little primitive that it would be, he did this to pay off Satan. But certainly throughout history, there are, you know, he did this as an example to us. He did this because sin needed to be judged, and this was what it would take to judge it. And there are all sorts of different ideas as to what does it mean that Jesus died for us. But and Isaiah 53 is all about the atonement. And it's fascinating because this chapter was written by Isaiah like 700 years before Jesus died on the cross. And there were theologians who had a problem with that because it's like, how could you have a prophecy in such detailed way about Jesus and his death if it was written seven or years before Jesus was here? 
And there were, I mean, early on, I remember Pastor Chuck telling us about he met with a rabbi and he read Isaiah 53 to him and he goes, where do you think that comes from in the Bible? And the rabbi said, oh, it's got to be somewhere in the New Testament. It's about Jesus. He said, well, no, actually, it's from Isaiah. And so he was kind of surprised to hear that. Now, enough thanks to the Jews for Jesus and others, most Jews now are aware of Isaiah 53, and the best thing the rabbis can do is say that, well, it's about um, the nation of Israel suffering. But there's an awful lot in Isaiah 53 that certainly doesn't connect well with that. There were people who had to come up with a theory that Isaiah, at least part of it, at least they would call it Deutero-Isaiah, where from a certain place in the book on, that it must have been written later in the New Testament era because it's so obviously about Jesus. But then when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in the 40s and they found complete scrolls of the book of Isaiah, all 66 chapters, and the scrolls were a couple hundred years older than, than when Jesus came, then it's like, oh boy, this is a problem. But Isaiah 53 is an amazing chapter that reflects on the most important event that ever happened in all of human history, that Jesus came and died. But he died for us. So what did he die to do for us? And that's something that I think we can reflect on for the rest of our lives and not completely plumb the depths. But Isaiah does such an amazing job of describing this. And so, again, I, I, I want to do the whole chapter, but I'm, I'm realistic. So let's just focus on verses 5 and 6. We're talking about him dying, and it says, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. With his stripes, we are healed. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All of our failure, all of our sin placed on him as he gave his life for us. And again, it just gets better as you dig deeper into the chapter. It's interesting when you look at the beginning of it as well, but that's the heart of atonement. That's the heart of what does it mean that Jesus died? Why is the cross so important to Christians? Why can we not get beyond the cross? Why is it that somebody like the Apostle Paul would say, even though he taught about resurrection and everything else, But he said, when it comes down to it, I preach Christ and him crucified, period. We can't afford to get past it. It is looking at the cross and considering its implications is not just some Catholic thing. It's a Christianity thing. It's a Jesus thing. And it goes all the way back to where it was, you know, this is the best chapter in the Bible on the atonement. And it was written 700 years before Jesus even was born. So as we consider these verses, let me kind of walk through it and and give you a little more zoom-in detail. But if you think of it this way, his death 
was designed to fix the things that are ruining our lives. So as we look at what his death did, we begin to get hints as to the kinds of things that we are doing to hurt ourselves. The kinds of things that we are doing that ruins our lives, that causes us to settle for less than God's best for us, okay? So first of all, he was wounded for our transgressions. That word in Hebrew for wounded is a word that literally means pierced, drilled through. If they drilled through something, it, was, it uses the same word. So it's referring specifically to the nails that were driven into his hands and feet. And so he was wounded, he was pierced for, you know, as it says, but he was wounded for our iniquity. The word iniquity doesn't mean necessarily a lot to us, or for our transgressions, I'm sorry. The word for transgressions is a word that refers to rebellion. It's like, I don't want to submit to authority, and so I am doing what I want to do instead. I mean, that's a pretty good description of kind of what sin is, but it's a particular facet of who we are that's really important. It's like, did I mess it up? He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. So transgressions are rebellion. Now, I got that straight? Rebellion... And all of these things that he talks about aren't necessarily, they aren't equally with each of us. But you have to ask yourself, do you have a rebellion inside of you that makes you want to just not do what you're expected to do? Now, we all have this to varying degrees. Some of us are plagued with a sense of, if you want me to do it, I deliberately don't want to do it. Little kids can be that way. Oh, don't touch it. I want to touch it. There is something within us often, and it can really mess you up. That spirit of rebelliousness, that spirit of I don't want to submit to authority, that's something that needs to be addressed if we're going to stop destroying our own lives. And so when he was wounded, you know, it was for our transgression, it was for our rebelliousness, it was for that rebel spirit, first of all. So how does this work? Okay, I want my way. We know that goes totally against what God wants, but it isn't just because we contradict what he wants us to do. There's a, there's a part of us where our rebellion destroys not just a connection with God, our spirit of rebellion destroys our relationships with others, it destroys our effectiveness in a lot of areas of our lives. If we can't get past the idea that I want to be contrarian and do everything against what people want me to be, then we short ourselves in so many ways. We, we tear up our own lives. So how does Jesus being pierced do that? He willingly allowed them to drive nails into him. Now, you say, yeah, well, I just want my way. I'm doing this because I feel like it. I'm doing this because I don't like anybody telling me what to do. I don't take garbage from anyone. And so, sorry, that's who I am. And here is the perfect God-man 
saying, nail me. Put those nails in my hands. And so Isaiah, in predicting it, says, you think that you can rebel as a, as a matter of a knee-jerk reaction to things, that the first thing that you want is you don't want to be told what to do, and you look at Jesus on the cross, and somehow you think you're superior to him. He showed you what it was like to, and as we read on, he talks about he didn't even open his mouth in protest. So he certainly, Jesus had every right and every ability and capacity to stop what was going on. And yet he showed us that sometimes in life, you have to resist what's inside of you that wants to rebel. And you just go, you know what? We can do it your way and I can still win. I can still become everything I'm supposed to be. And that's such an important lesson to learn in life that we would, instead of thinking that I need to push back against everything that anybody wants me to do, there's a fly buzzing around me, some <laughs> demon. I, but instead of that, I go, I look at him suffering on the cross and I realize rebellion against what somebody wants me to do is not the way to win. It's not ultimately the best response because see, in reality, the more rebellious you are, the more you are controlled by those who want to control you. So if they're saying, here's what we're gonna do to you, and he's saying, no, I don't care what you think. That wasn't as amazing as the fact that he said, you know what? We can do it your way. I don't have a heart to rebel against you. I, I have a God who's greater than that. I am greater than that. And so Isaiah would let us know, hey, there's something about rebellion that happens on the cross that can help us to discover how we don't have to live our lives always in rebellion. There's a time, you don't just do everything everyone wants you to do. We see plenty of examples of Jesus standing up against certain things. But if in this situation, his love for us was so great that he was willing to submit to what he had to submit to in order to get this taken care of, then should we ever consider, sometimes my will isn't number one. Sometimes what, you know, sometimes my rebellion doesn't serve me as well as I would like it to. So, you know, he, he starts with that, you know, his, his wounds were for our rebellion. But he says, you know, but, you know, there he was. And with this, with this wound that was healed by, you know, his, when he was wounded, it was for our rebellion. But then he was bruised, and that Hebrew word there means crushed, smashed. He was bruised for our iniquity. And the word iniquity is a word that means, it's the idea of you take something and you twist it. You bend it. The, the, root, the root word there means to twist or to bend. And so what he's talking about in us is that we have sometimes a, a, a knee-jerk reaction that whatever is there, we want to turn it into what serves us well. 
We want to turn every circumstance into what makes me look good, what gives me what I want. And so rather than just accept what it is that God says, whatever it is he does, I want to twist it to fit me. We do this with the Bible all the time. We pull verses completely out of context because we make it say what we think we want it to say. But again, it's a natural, and some of us have this greater than others. Like I say, I'm, I'm rebellious to the core. If you tell me I have to do something, I don't want to do it. And being able to put a spin on something, that's something that makes sense too. Let's take this and let's turn it into what I really want it to be. And a lot of times we look at things that happen in our lives that as if God wants to take what's happening and turn it into something great. There are times when he does that, but he, was, he allowed himself to be smashed rather than to say, you know, you could put a good spin on this. We need to be really careful when we take what God says and then we put a spin on it to get it to say what I really want it to say. That's, you know, either we need to be saved or we don't. One of the things we need to be saved from is our tendency to do spin control, to interpret things in the way that we want them to be rather than to allow what happens to happen. And when you see Jesus on the cross, he could have, it would have been pretty simple for him to, he's being taken, he's carrying the cross, all this is happening, and imagine, boy, I can really blow people's minds if all of a sudden I come down off the cross. That's why the evil people were telling him to do it. They thought, this will be a way better show than if you just die. But he's not into coming up with the best show that he can make. He's not in the entertainment business. So no, no spin, no twist, no changing. He's submitted. He's a picture of complete submission. And it's interesting that he is submitting to evil people in this circumstance, but that's the way that he submitted to God. So, you know, not only is he, you know, somebody who, as he was pierced, you know, it was, you know, you understand that, okay, I don't need to do what I want to do. But then as he was smashed, there was also this sense of, you know, he, I needed to address this thing in me that makes me want to put a twist on things. And so he untangles that and helps me to accept things the way they are instead of me trying to make things the way they are. Our job is not to manipulate people. Our job is not to, how can I do what I want to do to get you to do what I want you to do? The cross shows us, no, that is not the way. He could have very easily buddied up with the Pharisees and told him, hey, you know, you guys will be special, I'll be special, and we'll, you know, we can work this out together. But he wasn't there to please people. He wasn't there to take what happens and put a twist on it. So he says, you know, again, wounded for our transgression, bruised, crushed for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him. The word chastisement's an interesting word in the Hebrew, it really means education. Now, how did chastise become punish when the root of the word really means education? Well, that's easy. If you're younger, you have no clue about this. 
if you're older, you remember, a part of teaching, whether it was in coaching, whether it was in teaching at school, whether it was in parental raising you, a part of the whole deal was you learn when bad things happen to you. You learn when you're punished. It becomes chastisement or, or punishment happens as a means to teach you the things that you need to learn. It's why people today aren't as smart because we think the object of life is to make it as easy as possible and give everyone what they want. So therefore, you come to some of these ridiculous conclusions because, well, nobody ever told you that if you do things wrong, it's gonna cost you. No, it's not gonna do you wrong. If you do things wrong, we're gonna accept what you do. You feel like you wanna go in and run in a store and take whatever you want? Okay. But what do you learn? You learn that taking a shortcut is something that's really beneficial. So the chastisement of our peace, the education of peace, are you at peace? Do you really have a sense of things are good, things are fine, I'm okay? I mean, Jesus is in this horrible moment on the cross, and yet in the end, he's like, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. He had a peace. And so as you know, we're told here in Isaiah that we learn, we are educated about peace by seeing him on the cross. So how does that work? Well, what is it in my life right now that's robbing me of my peace? Now compare that to the cross and say, is there a way that I can be resolved to the fact that I don't always get things my way, I don't always get what I expect, sometimes life blindsides me, but how can I find peace? And one of the, one of the surefire ways is to consider Jesus hanging on the cross and realize he had peace in that moment. He was in a lot of pain. He felt like the Father was deserting him, and yet he committed himself to the Father. So for every one of us, there are times in our lives when we lose our peace. And those are the times when the cross teaches us how to find peace, regardless of whatever the circumstances are that, around, that are around us. And then finally, in verse 5, and by his stripes, that is the wounds from his beatings, we are healed. We need to be healed whether we know it or not. We're all damaged. Um, healing is something that, for Jesus, it says that his stripes bring healing. Now, people have debated, by his stripes we are healed. Does that mean that there's guaranteed healing in the atonement? Did Jesus die for us so that if we get sick, we'll automatically get well? And there are, uh, there are people in the church who have taught that that is. It's a guarantee of healing. If you get sick and you don't get healed, then you're just not believing enough or whatever. And then there are others who say, no, it's spiritual healing. The healing that he's talking about is the spiritual healing. So which is it? Um, it's in a bigger sense, really both and a lot more as well. See, in Matthew, when Jesus healed some people's bodies, Matthew said that this fulfilled this verse in Isaiah 53, 5. Then later in 1 Peter, Peter talks about it as spiritual healing. Well, it's a way bigger thing than either or. Because 
What healing acknowledges is, I'm not healthy. The word heal, health, whole, holy, all those words are the same basic word that mean you are in the place where you're supposed to be. And you have a sense of that resolution and acceptance of that which is the circumstances that are around you. To not be that way is to be a slave to whatever happens. So by looking at him being beaten, and yet he is the picture of wholeness, holiness, completeness, then for all of us, as we see his stripes, it should help us to say, I'm unhealthy, but I want to move in the direction of well. I want to move in the direction of completeness, of wholeness. Now, you're not going to get there until you get to heaven, but it's so important for us to see the cross in front of us because our healing is there, sometimes physical, sometimes mental, emotional, psychological. There are a whole lot of factors that come into making us more complete people. But if we really understand the cross, we will be more whole. We will be more complete. And, you know, healing, health, is holiness. It's something that you learn. It's something that he educates us. And like with any education, sometimes you do something that feels weird. Sometimes you do something that's painful because it leads you to the point where Wow, this is, this is really good. We under, it's one of the benefits of sports, by the way, is that there's a way to learn something and you know it hurts, but man, it's a good feeling when it comes together. And it's a, it's a good way to look back and go, what went wrong? How did this not work? I, yesterday I spent the day watching soccer games with my grandkids. And you know, I, Brandon, my little grandson, he's like the littlest guy on the team. And you know, his team is all like, you can know how it went because his team was all like little blonde white guys and then the other team speaking Spanish. And I'm like, yeah, boy. But I watched him. He hustled every second. And he, at one point, he went to kick the ball and a guy got his leg in front of him and I could tell it hurt him and he started to grab his leg and he just jumped down and kept, he's like running and kicking the ball while he's like limping and he worked through it. And I'm like, isn't that like life? Isn't that, don't you actually feel better when you battle through it and you learn that I can sit here and cry or I can stay up and keep battling and the outcome is much better. I'll feel better about myself than, you know, if I take a shortcut. So we look at Jesus on the cross, and he's like, this pain is designed to help you to learn how to be healthy, to learn how to be complete, to be whole. You know, by his stripes, we are healed. By his stripes, we experience that, you know, that sense of being fixed, of becoming more healthy, becoming more holy. And so, you know, there's a lot there. Now you get into the next verse, um, verse 6, and you're probably more familiar with this verse, but he says, all we like sheep have gone astray. That word astray means randomly wandering. And that certainly describes sheep, and it describes many of us sometimes. 
Like, no direction, no focus, no concentration. Sheep wander. That's what they do. And so I, I always like when there's something that makes me feel guilty when it says, we've all done this. We don't all do it to the same degree, but certainly we all do this. So he's saying, this is another part of our problem. We lose focus. We lose concentration. We lose the sense of understanding who I am and what I'm supposed to be doing and how I'm supposed to do it. And I become constantly distracted by everything else. I become, you know, you know in a sense, I, he's saying, we're all ADHD to a degree. But looking at the cross, you see focus in action. You know, you see someone who knew what he was supposed to do And in the end, he said, I did everything I was supposed to do. He had a single-minded focus, and the cross is a reminder of that. It's It's why in communion, Jesus said, I want you to do this regularly to remember my body that's broken, my blood that's shed. Because if we can get that kind of focus, then we're reminded of the kind of focus that he demonstrated on the cross. And the more we become distracted, the more we become bouncing around, we're not sure, we're not, then we're like sheep wandering around. We've all done it. We all do it regularly, but how do I find the focus in my life? How do I find, you know, for this I was born and for this came I into the world that Paul talks about. How do I know what I'm supposed to do and who I'm supposed to be? He calls us to discover that, and it's gonna be a hint Look at the cross and say, what is it that is my cross to bear? Jesus said, you know, if you're going to come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. So have you figured that out? Have you found that focus? Looking at the cross, looking at Jesus' death, reminds us of that single-minded focus that he had, that he knew what he was there to do and he was going to do it. Now, he hasn't called each of us to die in the same way that he does, although we're all going to die. Um, unless he returns first, but he's called us to have the same kind of focus that he had, and the cross should help us. I, when I look at the cross, and it's why the cross became such a huge symbol for Christianity, is that you look at that cross and you're reminded a single focus that Jesus had, and he did it for us. What did he want from us? What kind of life did he want to give us? How did he want life to work for us? The more that we can get our focus down from looking at him, then the more our lives can become more what they're supposed to be. So, you know, but we've all lost our focus. We're all bouncing around. We're all trying to figure things out like sheep. But we've turned everyone to his own way. That's the other thing. And this runs through all of these things. We are selfish. I interpret situations and life and I judge my own conduct and responses and everything else based on what's good for me. Selfishness destroys more people than anything else. That sense that we have of I want what I want. Now, When you want what you want, even when you get it, it's really not satisfying because you know you manipulated in order to try to get it. And you know that you got what you wanted at the expense of someone else not getting what they wanted. 
But the cross reminds us it is not about selfishness. It's not about me getting what I want. You know, my own way? How can I, how in the world can I say, I want my way and look at the cross and go, well, that's Jesus. I'm not Jesus. I'm not perfect. I still want my way. Anyone who wants their way and sticks to it has not looked at the cross and really understood the implications of it. Why is this a big deal? Because God wants us to be less selfish? No, because he wants us to have the most full lives that we can possibly have. And selfishness will steal life from you. Selfishness will will undermine everything that you value and everything that you care about. Selfishness will destroy every relationship you've ever been in. It will ruin any professional life that you may have. In every way possible, wanting your own way is a recipe for disaster. So he says, let me just put this, make it clear. And Paul in Philippians will probably go to this verse at one point, but where he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, didn't regard that as something to hang on to, but he emptied himself, took upon himself the form of a servant. So he says, the best thing for you is to get over yourself, is to get over what you say you want. God will take care of you. Look at the cross and then tell me how you want your way. See, somebody who wants their way isn't looking at the cross. And he understands this ruins lives. And so he says, you know, he, you know, we've all done this. We've all looked for our own way. But then he says, but the Lord laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity, the twistedness of all of us. It all comes down to that for him. So the cross is something that we should consider often. Like I said, Paul said, I preach the cross. That's the biggest thing. That's why we have a cross in the front of our church to remind us always of these lessons that are so important. That when Jesus gave his life for you, it was not just to cut a deal so you could go to heaven. He cares about heaven. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you and I'll come again and receive you out of my cell. But heaven is is not the major focus of Jesus' work in our lives. It's not the major focus of the scriptures at all. For Isaiah, he doesn't even mention the afterlife because you understand, no, what he wants is to make your life rich and full now. And for him to do that, he's got to fix what's broken in you. And when you understand the cross in all of its implications, you just realize how amazing that is what Jesus did on the cross that gives us the ability to follow him into the life that he has for us, into everything that he wants for us. And I, later on in the chapter, he goes on and talks about, I mean, and this is like one of the most mind-blowing scriptures ever, where it says, shows Jesus suffering on the cross, and it says that the father would see the travail of his son and be satisfied For by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he will bear their iniquities. He's like, God would see him being crushed, and it would please the Lord to crush him because of you and me. 
And that's like, wow, how amazing he was thinking of us. The father, when he saw his son on the cross, he was thinking of us. He wanted us to discover what life can be. And I, uh, that's something I can't fathom. Because if I was on a cross, or my son was on a cross, I'd be thinking of me. Our father was doing just the opposite. And that's amazing. And the whole thing started in the beginning of the chapter. It describes Jesus in a way that is so surprising for us. Because again, all of this is counterintuitive to the way that we regard everything that there is to our faith. And so as he describes Jesus, he in the beginning of the chapter, he goes, who would ever believe it? Who would believe our report? He will grow up before him as a tender plant, a root out of the dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. We hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. So Jesus, that completely eliminates the idea of Jesus as being this beautiful looking model. It's clearly Isaiah saying, no, when you see him, there's nothing about his looks that would make him stand out or be special. In fact, the way he looks and even his depression is something that would probably push you away. Think about this. This Jesus who's hanging on the cross, according to Isaiah, was anything but attractive. He looked probably much less like Jim Caviezel and much more like Danny DeVito. More like, oh! I said that for a service and somebody's like, oh, that's blasphemous. (laughs) Tell Isaiah. It could be worse than that. But he came to connect with all of us We don't all look like Jim Caviezel, but we worship a Savior who understands, man, I hurt, I feel lonely, I'm sometimes depressed, but I went to the cross because I love you that much. And that, for me, is just like, wow. So spend some time, if you have some time, maybe this week, memorizing verse 5 and 6 for sure, and and going beyond that if you want as well, you'll get extra credit. But um, the atonement, what Jesus did for us, nothing more important than the cross of Christ, according to Paul, and according to Jesus himself, and according to Isaiah, it came down to this. So I would encourage you, as you consider these truths, to ask yourself, what's the cross doing in my life? How is it helping me to become more healthy? How is it helping me to become more focused? How is it helping to make me less selfish? How is it helping to make me untwist what's there, to become less rebellious? Because if the cross isn't doing that, the cross isn't doing anything. This was his intent. This was what he desired for all of us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this amazing picture 700 years before it happened of the cross. May we never lose sight of the cross. May we never lose sight of what you did on the cross and you told us, keep keep experiencing this. Keep celebrating my death. Keep remembering my body that's broken, my blood that's shed because everything in us that is destroying us 
can be remedied when we look at you on the cross. Please teach us this. And I thank you that the cross wasn't the end, but we're not at the end yet either. So help us to live every day in connection with you instead of just waiting and thinking that somehow uh, everything is going to be fine in the end. Help us to connect with you in a personal way. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. That's all.